Well, we're in part two of the message on Gideon, unexpected hero, and we're in Judges 6 and 7. Uh, tonight, let me just kind of review for you. If you uh, normally take notes, you need to make sure you've got a pen and paper handy because you're going to get a whole front page before I get about six minutes into this. Okay, so uh, just kind of buckle your seat and... Uh, Last time we looked at Gideon, we saw a man who three things were evident in his life. He was called by God, he was confirmed by God, and he was empowered by God. This is one of the judges that God raises up as Israel begins to continually decline in her love for God. Every time she sins, she goes a little deeper. It is such a picture of what has happened in America and what is happening uh, in our culture today, and that God was raising up judges. Uh, the judges were there because they had forgotten to follow him, but God raised up this insignificant person named Gideon. Now, I, I want to set some background here about the Holy Spirit, and there are three things about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament where he operated differently than he does today. Number one, not all believers were indwelt. The Spirit of God would come on people for a time. Not all believers were indwelt. The Spirit of God moved. The Spirit of God was present, but He was not indwelling in everyone. That did not happen until Pentecost. Secondly, He came to empower for a special purpose. In other words, when you see the Spirit of the Lord was upon them or the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, when you see those phrases in the Old Testament, it was for a special season or a special purpose in the life of that person or for the lives of others. Thirdly, he did not permanently dwell in believers. He did not permanently dwell in believers. He came upon them for a season. So those are three things about the Holy Spirit because these all have to do with how we think about uh, the life of Gideon, the call of God on his life, the empowering of God on his life, but also how it relates to us and how we pick up from the Old Testament and use things in the Old Testament sometimes haphazardly. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Number one, every believer is indwelt and baptized in the Spirit. Now, sometimes because of denominational uh, differences, we can use a lot of different words, and, and in many ways, we can be talking about the same thing. We just use different terminology. But I believe that the Bible teaches that when you are saved, the moment of your conversion, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit is in total control and has all of you. That's a process. That's why you have to be filled daily, maybe 20 times a day. One baptism, many fillings. That's the principle of the New Testament. There's one baptism of the Holy Spirit, many fillings. And sometimes when you read a book like Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians, you you, you think that they had a second blessing when you have to remember in that culture, and I'm just going to take you a little church history here. In, in those days, everyone considered themselves a Christian. 
people were born into Christian homes. They were baptized into Christian homes. And so uh, you, you sometimes see in their stories, there's not a clear defining moment when they were saved, but there's a clear defining moment when they would have what they called a deeper experience or the baptism of the Spirit. It could be thought and could be argued that really what that was was their salvation. That they had religion, that they knew about Christ. They lived in a Christian culture, if you will, in Europe in the time of the Reformation and after and in the times of awakenings. It, it could be that they just were having their initial Christian experience. But we won't argue with that. Secondly, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to transform us. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is not to make us feel good or have goosebumps or like ourselves a little better. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to transform our lives. That's where the fruit and the evidence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ comes in. No fruit, you've got to ask if there's any spirit. Thirdly, He abides forever. He abides forever. The Holy Spirit does not come and go out of the life of the believer. Now, the awareness of His presence or walking in the fullness of His presence can come and go, but His presence is an abiding presence, whether you sense it all the time or not. Number four, He gifts us all in different ways. He gives us all in different ways. I'm glad everybody's not like me because if they were, they would drive me crazy. <laughs> he just gives us all differently. Now, think about it this way. When, when you think about spiritual gifts, and years ago I did a series, gosh, it's been 20 years ago, I did a series on spiritual gifts. But think about spiritual gifts this way. Think about your house. In your house, you have a television, a stereo, maybe you have an iPod, an iPhone, a cell phone, uh, a home phone, you have a microwave, a dishwasher, a, uh, you have a stove, you have a refrigerator, you have a freezer, you have a hair dryer, <laughs> I hope some of you have hair, you have a curling iron, maybe you have a curling iron, maybe you don't. All of those things use the same source of power, but they all have different functions. Does that make sense? You're going to plug it all in, and if it's working properly, it's going to work no matter what the item is because it's made to run off of the same power. So the power is the same. The purpose is different. So if you have a different spiritual gift than someone else, if you have uh, the gift of administration or you have the gift of helps or hospitality or whatever it is, if you have a different gift, you're, everybody's drawing from the same power source. If we're going to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit, we all draw from the same source. It's one source, many functions. That's why the church is pictured as a body and Christ is the head. Not everybody's a hand or feet or elbows, and, and we're all different parts, but when we work together, the body functions like it's supposed to function. So, the level of our power is in direct proportion to our obedience. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. He says in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. I love this quote by Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks says, and if you can write it down or just get the gist of it, it's a good prayer to pray. Lord, here I am. 
I want to be your suit of clothes today. I want you to take me and use me and just walk around in me today. That's a good prayer. Just to get up more and say, Lord, here I am. I, I, I want to be your suit of clothes. I, I want you to just walk around in me today so that when people see me, they see Christ. Now, Gideon had power because he had committed himself to the Lord, but we come to a part of the story here as we pick up in this second message. We come to a part of the story that's been misused. Judges 6 and verse 36. I, I don't know of any section of Scripture outside of by his stripes we shall be healed. I don't know of any section of scripture that is more misused and misquoted than this section of scripture right here. Then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me, underline it, as you have spoken. Now, what did God say? I'm going to deliver Israel through you. Now, is everybody clear? God has spoken to him. God has audibly spoken to Gideon. I am going to deliver Israel through you. Behold, <laughs> I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me. So God's word wasn't good enough. That's the first thing you need to learn here. God's word wasn't good enough for him. He needed a symbol, a sign. Pick it up. You will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. Whew, boy, praise God. He, he did what I asked him to do. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to the Lord, don't be angry with me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on all the ground. And God did so that night for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on all the ground. In the marginal notes, it should read, God thought, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> so let's look at it. The farce of the fleece. I don't know any other way to put it. The farce of the fleece. Remember the context. Now, there's probably only been uh, the books of Moses written, possibly the book of Job has been written. So the, the Old Testament scriptures are not complete. We only have the first five books. The Holy Spirit has not come to dwell. So there's no complete revelation of God. So in a sense, Gideon did what he did not fully knowing what we know. And, but there's no reason for us to use this method today. I, I watched a fascinating program this afternoon on PBS. I, I didn't know there were fascinating programs on PBS, but, but there are. But I watched a fascinating program on PBS and on the perception and the 21st century interpretation of Abraham Lincoln and the interpretation of Lincoln in the days in which he lived. And actual things that he said when he was running for president that he knew he had to say to get elected and how history moved him towards some of the decisions that he made. It was a fascinating story, but I love what two historians said. You cannot interpret a man in light of today. You have to always interpret a man in light of his times. 
You can't say, well, knowing what we know now, we should have never done this. Well, when they did that, they didn't know what we know now. Hindsight's always 20-20. And so, so you, you can't totally fault Gideon, although he is at fault some here. I don't want him to be mad at me when I meet him in heaven. But you, you, you can't totally fault Gideon for making this decision because of the times that he lived in. But remember, before you give him a total pass, he is clothed with the Holy Spirit. We saw that last week. But his natural temperament is doubt and fear. This is not a test case for finding the will of God. Now, I believe that God clearly wants us to know his will. I don't believe he wants us stumbling in the dark. I, I believe we already know more God's will now than most of us live up to. Uh, it, it's like Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me. Here's a thought here before something comes up on the screen. This is a lack of faith, not an act of faith. You can write over this passage, this is a lack of faith, not an act of faith. And when you hear fleeces talked about today, they're talked about as if they are acts of faith, but they're not, nor was it here. So let me give you the first principle. Gideon already knew God's will, verses 36 and 37. Verse 37, as you have spoken. Two times it says that. The problem wasn't that he didn't know that God's will. The problem was he lacked the faith to do God's will. He was outmanned. He was outgunned. He was outnumbered. And he didn't know how God was going to do all this. He was the least and the youngest. Now, God had clearly spoken to him. Verses 12, 14, and 16. God had clearly revealed himself to him. Verse 21. God had given Gideon his spirit. Gideon was fearful, not faithful, because he said, if you will do this, then I will know. How could you not know when the angel of the Lord standing there talking to you? Uh, Lord, I got this little piece of wool right here. I went down and got it out of the carpet scrap shop. I'm going to put it out here outside. How could you not know when the angel of the Lord, the, the pre-incarnate presence of Christ, is standing in front of you telling you what you're supposed to do? You see, here's a lack of faith on his part. What he was doing was saying, God, I, I, I get it, but I'm not sure I can believe you. Now, before we throw Gideon under the bus and back over him three times, how many times have we done the same thing to the Lord? God, I know. I know what you told me. I know what your word says. But I'm not sure I can believe you. But let, let me just give you two verses. They'll come up here. Psalm 32 and verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. And I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 37, 23 and 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. So if, if I'm in the fleece mentality, I'm giving evidence that I don't believe God and I can't take him at his word. It, it's almost like going to God and say, God, meet me on my terms. Well, God never meets us on our terms. Now, he condescended 
if you will, to Gideon because he had a greater mission in mind and probably didn't have time to tell Gideon 47 reasons why I ought to believe him. So he appeased, if you will, Gideon's lack of faith. But again, that's not a model for us on finding the will of God. Third thing, the fleece didn't really solve his problem because God did exactly what he asked him to do. And said, he said, God, how about if we do it a little differently this time, just so I know it's you. You know, it's kind of like the guy that went and sat down on a bus one day in a major city and he'd been hearing his pastor preach about needing to share the gospel with people. And he got on the bus and as he had his quiet time that morning, he said, Lord, if it's your will for me to share the gospel with somebody today, just put them in my path. And a guy sits down on the bus by him and before he can even get fully seated, he starts crying. And he starts crying, just bawling. And so this Christian turns to him and says, What's wrong? He said, I don't know. I just don't know if God even knows I exist. And the man stopped and prayed, Lord, is this the one? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Hello. (laughs) You see, God was acting according to his understanding because Gideon was a slow learner. Now, why can't we use a fleece as a guide to God's will? Number one, it was a one-time event. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see a reference to using a fleece to determine the will of God. It was a one-time event. It's associated with a major event at a major pivotal point in the life of Israel. Secondly, it was an Old Testament event. It was an Old Testament event. You don't see a fleece used uh, in the New Testament. The one time that there's anything close to this is when uh, they drew straws to figure out who was going to take the place of Judas. And by the way, after that, you never hear from that guy again. You ever notice that? Well, let's draw straws. Okay, that, he looks good. It's kind of the way some churches pick deacons. You know, he, he looks like he'll be faithful. Let's pick him. And then you never hear from him again. So it's an Old Testament event Thirdly, it wasn't a way to find God's will. Verse 36, then Gideon said to the Lord, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. His weak faith was looking for reassurance, not guidance. That's important. He was looking for reassurance, not guidance. He already knew God had spoken to him, but he needed his weak faith propped up. You you see, You can't think that finding the will of God means you can make demands on God. That he will do whatever you do like he's a bellhop that's waiting for you to ring the bell so he can come up and wait on your every need. Nor is it a miracle a day will keep the devil away. Oh, if we just had a miracle. If I put that fleece out there, I could believe God. No, you wouldn't. You'd be just like Gideon. You'd go and try to get a different kind of fleece the next day. And about the first time your faith started to wobble, you'd ask God for another sign. And and a foolish generation, Jesus said, seeks for signs. Can I tell you something? The American church is driven by a desire for signs, not Scripture. Because we think that if there are signs and wonders that God will bring in his kingdom, There were no signs and wonders when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door and the church tried to take his life for saying the just shall live by faith. 
He was just standing on the truth of the Word of God. It, it can also mean that, that a fleece becomes a deciding factor, and you let a fleece, and by the way, most of the people I know that have used fleeces <laughs> have manipulated the fleece because they're not sure God can do it, so they kind of help him out. If a fleece is a deciding factor, ultimately, then your feelings are the deciding factor, not what God has said. So let me give you a couple of more thoughts here. God doesn't give us guidance as much as he gives us a guide. We know God gives us guidance. Don't belabor this and try to strain at gnats with this. God does give us guidance, but what he really gave us was a Holy Spirit and a written word to guide us in the way we should go and the things we should do. So if we want to know the will of God, we're not going to find it by trying to get a book on guidance as much as we are by reading the Word of God and letting God speak to us by His Spirit through His Word. Secondly, God's guidance is based on principles and precepts in the Word of God. God's guidance is based on principles and precepts in the Word of God. Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4, Psalm 145 in verse 19. It's based on principles and precepts of the Word of God. And remember, the Old Testament, those promises in the Old Testament are for Israel. There are special promises for Israel. There are promises for us in a new covenant that are different from the promises of Israel. Some people want to go back and say, well, God promised us prosperity because that's what it says in the Old Testament. So God's promised prosperity. Yeah. And he also said, don't eat barbecue. So you can't claim the promises if you're not going to follow the ceremonial law. That means you can't eat pork. You can't eat bacon. You can't eat sausage. That just about ruins a southerner right there. You want to wipe out a good Baptist church, tell them you can't eat pork. <laughs> you, you, you can't do all, I mean, all the rules and regulations of Israel to set them apart. Be careful that you want to pick and choose what you pull out of the Old Testament as a principle to stand off of, because the principles for us are written in the New Testament, and primarily they are written in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and in the Epistles that Paul and Peter wrote. Next, God's guidance is confirmed by the peace of God ruling in our hearts. God's guidance is confirmed by the peace of God ruling in our hearts. Colossians 3.15, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. I love what Paul says in Philippians. When people ask me about if they should do something or go somewhere or whatever, I tell them, Paul said to the Philippians this, you need the peace of God and you need the God of peace. It's not either or, it's both. You need the peace of God ruling in your heart and you need the God of peace reigning in your heart. Because when you get in the middle of something that's difficult, if you don't have the peace of God and the God of peace, you'll think, God, how did you get me into this mess? I must have missed your will. Rather than saying, Lord, I'm here under your authority. I'm here according to your word. Finally, God's guidance can be confirmed by other people. Now, one author calls this the uh, fourth and one principle. It's fourth down and one, and you got to go for it, and you call time out to go talk to the coach. 
to make sure you've got the right play. This is the fourth and one principle. When, when you're at fourth and one and the game is on the line, you don't call timeout and go up to the upper deck to the guy that bought a ticket from a scalper who's three sheets to the wind, drunk, who's obnoxious and say, hey man, what do you think we ought to do? You go to one person, the head coach. You go to him and you find out what you need to do. There, there are people that you go to that are wise and then there are people that you go to that'll just tell you what you wanna hear. I mean, they'll just say what it, you know, because they don't want to offend you. They don't want to, and they don't want to be wrong. So they'll just say, well, whatever you want, that's what, that's what I think you ought to do. You go to wise people. And how do you find wise people? You find people that have made good decisions or when they've made bad decisions, they've been honest enough to admit they made bad decisions. And if they don't know, they're willing to say, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that right now. I don't know what to tell you about that. They're wise. They're not trying to come alongside you to pat you on the back to make you feel better about yourself. They're trying to give you the best scenario for you to win in that situation. Then secondly, there's a faith that becomes practical. Judges chapter 7, we come to gut check time. There's a problem. Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. <laughs> so much for the bigger is better mentality. Here's a faith that's becoming practical. That, that kind of thinking makes us arrogant because God says, if you've got 32,000 Gideon, there's some of you that are going to be thinking, well, we're outnumbered, we're outmanned, and we're outgunned, but at least we've got a fighting chance if we can get the high ground. The difference is God has a different paradigm. Now, Gideon had been outnumbered 450 to 1. And God says, I, I need you to get rid of some people. Now, this to me, the, the picture of this to me, the, the, the picture that came to me in my study would be like, we go out to Legacy Park on a Saturday morning during a flag football game with five-year-olds. And I go gather them all around and say, hey guys, come on, get on the bus and go with me. And we get on the bus and we go to the airport and we fly to New York, and I go into the locker room and say, we're going to play the New York Giants today. This is going to be great. <laughs> huh? <laughs> we, we don't wear pads. Doesn't matter. Uh, we don't come up to their knees. It's okay. I mean, God is trying to get his people in a position where they know if God doesn't come through for us, we are sunk. Okay? This is not, hey, I feel pretty good about this. I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good too. I tell you what, if you feel good, I feel good. This, this is not that kind of situation. This is, we're going to get killed 
If God doesn't step up and do something for us, we're, we're just going to get slaughtered here. We, we don't have a chance. Now, I, I want you to see a picture of this valley. The, the Midianites have camped in the Valley of Jezreel, a strategic north-central highlands of Israel, and, and they probably assumed they would do the same thing. They would come out of those mountains, go down into the fertile valley, and they would wipe out the harvest. They would bring their camels in, and, and they would wipe it out and take all the food, then go back to the mountains and eat and fill themselves and, and be happy and do what they had already always done. But this time, God has a different plan. Because now Gideon is on the scene, and God has given Gideon a plan. There are two armies in the valley in the spring of Herod. It was the only water available to Gideon and his 32,000. Now, to get a drink of this water, you would have had to gone through reeds and shrubs down a path that winds into this spring, which is now called Gideon Spring. You would have to wind into this path and it would have been easy for the enemy to slip down and hide in the bushes and attack and surprise them and ambush them. So we've gone from 135,000 to 32,000. Gideon, you got too many. Well, how many? About 99% too many. Send home everybody who's afraid. How many left? Well, we got 10,000. Too many. Verse 4, Judges 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he who I said to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all of the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, here's a picture of how you're supposed to drink. This is our guide in Israel. We'll see him in about a month. This is Gideon Springs. It's still there. There's still water in Gideon Springs. The source of it the beginning of that spring is in the middle of those bushes and shrubs. And you go there, and what Yuval is showing there is that you kneel down and you bring the water up. Why, was, why were they doing that? Here's why. If you're drinking like a dog, you're not paying attention and the enemy can ambush you. The reason they were to kneel down and pick up the water with their hand is they had their sword in one hand and getting water in the other hand. Even while refreshing themselves, they're watching and ready for battle. And God says to Gideon, those are the people that I'm going to use to win this day. Now, do you see an application to this? 
It's the difference between people who are self-centered and just concerned about their own safety and their own will and their own happiness who just go and say, what? I'm just so glad. <laughs> and they just go and they just, they're just lapping up like a dog. They think only of themselves. And then the person who says, you know, we're about to go into a battle. I need to pay attention. Amen. Now listen, we're in a battle. And we're outnumbered and we're outgunned. Except for the fact that the Holy Spirit is on our side and we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Amen. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So the odds are in our favor regardless of what it looks like. But this was a test. And as you see, you've all kneeling there and, and many of us have done that and knelt down there and, and scooped our hands in that water as you do that, you realize you, you can see it from that spring right there. You can look out over this long valley that goes on, it seems forever, up to these hills. And they would have heard the rattling of the army. They would have heard the camels. They would have known what had happened time and time again for some seven years of this bondage that they were in because the Midianites would come and steal their food. And now... Here they're down to 300. How are you going to find God's will now? Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord is your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and is with you. Deuteronomy 20 and verse 8. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. You see, God had already spoken. All Gideon was doing was acting on what God said in Judges 7, but he's also acting on what God had already said in the book of Deuteronomy. This is how you go into battle. You don't be faint-hearted, and if somebody is, send them home. They're not going to help you. They're just going to run for the tall grass when the battle comes. Know who you can go to war with. Know who will fight with you. Know who's not going to be a quitter, and stand your ground. So it was a simple test. All Gideon had to do was just watch. God said, that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. I don't know how long this took. It took a while. But all Gideon had to do was watch. It was a simple test, but it was a significant test because God stripped them of everything except God himself so that they could win a great victory. Now, here's the point. It wouldn't be Israel's victory or Gideon's victory. It would be the Lord's victory. I mean, nobody can walk around 300 against tens of thousands. Nobody can walk around and say, boy, I tell you what, we showed them. No. It wasn't going to be Gideon's victory. It wasn't going to be Israel's victory. It was going to be the Lord's victory. And you know the story. God delivered Midian into their hands. The man who was full of fear routes an army in panic. Pick up in verse 9. Uh, now in the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. Verse 15. 
He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, that's 100 each, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you will also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran crying out as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. In other words, they panicked and all killed each other. Whose victory was that? 300 guys with a lamp and a sword and able to yell loud? Well, it was the Lord's victory. I love what 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. No matter what we face, no matter what we fear, no matter the odds we face, when we're in God's will, there will be warfare. Mark it down. Make note of it. And it's not going to get any better if you get a lot of people on your side. It's only going to get better when you understand that if you're in God's will, you're going to be in warfare. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not for the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 is a great passage for you to get your arms around when you're thinking about what it means to walk in the will of God. For he says, know where your battle is, know where your power is, know what you need to tear down, know what needs to be lifted up, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, when I'm taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, I'm acting with boldness, not with fear about what God has said. Before Hitler became the dictator and overran all of Europe, there was a uh, prime minister in England who practiced appeasement. Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain, caved in to Hitler. He thought he was a winsome man that he could be reasoned with. And so Chamberlain signed the Munich Pact on September the 29th, 1938, which was yesterday in 1938, which gave Hitler the entire land of Czechoslovakia with the hopes that if you give Hitler Czechoslovakia, he will leave us alone. Pause, interject. That's the same attitude of the Americans and the world right now. If we let Ahmadinejad have Israel, he won't bother us. 
and he is more dangerous than Adolf Hitler. And we are foolish if we think we can appease a man who is demon-possessed. Eight days after signing the Munich Pact, now I'm back to history. Eight days after signing the Human Pact and caving into Hitler, Chamberlain arrived home. You can see this. It's on YouTube. You can see it in history films. Chamberlain arrived home in England and said, peace in our time, peace with honor. You think England had peace for the next seven years? The man that Chamberlain thought was honorable and could be reasoned with, and you wouldn't have to go to war to defeat your enemies, was snookered. <laughs> he was bamboozled. He was naive. But one man rose to the occasion. And Winston Churchill, on that day, walked into the House of Commons and said, Britain and France had to choose between war and dishonor. They chose dishonor. They will have war. The people should know that we have sustained defeat without war. They should know that we have passed an awful milestone in our history. And that terrible words have for the time being been pronounced against the Western democracies, thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. And do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip, the first foretaste of a bitter cup, which will be pro-offered to us year by year unless by supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigor, we arise again and take our stand for freedom as in the olden times. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not God's will for us to roll over and play dead when Satan is trying to destroy this world. You don't have to pray about it. It is God's will for us to stand on the authority of the Word of God. It is God's will for us to call the church to repentance. It is God's will for us to be bold in our faith. It is God's will for us to pray without ceasing. We don't have to figure out if that's God's will or not. And what this nation needs, what this community needs is believers who are not trying to figure out if they have to do the will of God or not, but who are willing to stand up and say the sword of the Lord and stand against the forces of hell that seek to destroy our community, our region, our nation, and this world. We know what to do. And we cannot have peace in our time and peace with honor when we act dishonorably. God needs to raise up another Gideon. He needs to raise up another Jephthah. He needs to raise up another Deborah. God needs to raise up some judges in our land to deliver us from our foolish ways. Let's pray he does.
Lord, we don't need a fleece tonight. We have all been called to be soldiers of the cross. We have all been called to put on the full armor of God because we are in a spiritual battle that is behind all the physical battles that we see. Lord, the battle is not in the social and ethical issues that we see around us. The real battle is in the demonic forces behind those actions. And we can't play games while the enemy is taking ground and stealing lives and families and nations. Father, I pray that as that song says, let the church rise and move the gates of hell. Let us not stand silently as a silent majority or a minority, whichever we are, and say, well, I just hope it gets better. Lord, you have spoken in your word. We know what your will is. Your will is for us to be salt, light, to take the gospel to the nations, to bring hope to the hopeless people, to lift up the downtrodden, to seek justice and to do mercy. And so, Lord, as we've learned some principles about finding your will tonight, I pray that our prayer will be tonight, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. We know what the good and perfect and acceptable will of God is. That we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, I pray for students in this room that are in a spiritual battle. That they would not live in fear, but they would walk by faith. Lord, I pray for people who listen to the voice of the enemy that says, you can't, you're defeated, it's over, it's done. Nothing can change. But Father, as long as your spirit is on this earth, and as long as you rule and reign in heaven, which is forever, hope is not lost. The cause is not over. There's still a possibility of a sweeping move of God across this land that drives the enemies back into the hills, turning on themselves because they are in disarray. Lord, it's time for us to stop being in disarray. It's time for the enemy to be put to flight. It's time for the enemy to be in disarray. Father, I claim on the authority of your word by every promise and principle that you've given, that the enemy doesn't have a right. He doesn't have authority over you. He's on a short leash. And Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus, just yank his chain one good time and let him know who's still in charge. Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. And we need to drink from the fountain of living water as soldiers prepared for battle, not as self-centered people just trying to quench our thirst in a moment or in a service or at an event. 
We need to drink fully from the fountain of life. Bless us, Father, this week as we fight the battles that are before us. Give us strength. Help us to be strong and courageous and not dismayed. Remind us, Father, the promise found in Chronicles, the Lord is with us when we are with Him. The question, Father, for us this week is not, are you with us? The question is, are we with you? And so, God, I ask you to help us to align our lives to you. And that we be good soldiers of our King. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.